Hello, my name is James McDermott. I'm a writer, teacher and 26-year-old cisgendered man. As a gay man, I love men, but as a gay man, I dislike men too. As a camp man who talks and writes about his feelings, I have always questioned stereotypical masculine ideals. As stereotypical men aren't camp, don't talk about their feelings and certainly don't create plays and poems about them. As a 26-year-old, I feel I've learned and unlearned lots about being a man, but at 26, still have lots to learn and unlearn about being my own kind of man. In this podcast series, I will talk with several people to explore masculinity, try and work out why we love and hate men, whether there are such things as masculine ideals, how creativity can help men explore and express themselves, and what men still have to learn and unlearn about being their own kind of man. In this episode, I'm joined by Lewis Buxton. Lewis, hello. Hey, James. How you doing, man? I'm really well. Thank you for joining us. So as a first question, and so the audience can get to meet you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you decide to come and have a chat with us today? My name's Lewis Buxton. I'm a poet and performer and arts producer, gender, and all of the things that fall out of that category has always been a sort of preoccupation of mine. I've always been very interested and always considered myself a feminist and someone who really cares about gender equality as a cisgendered man. I'm always quite preoccupied with the way in which I move through the world as a man, what that means, what things that holds me back from, what privileges that allows me. And so like this conversation in particular, where where people seem really interested in like delving into that and both separating some things out and like collapsing some binaries really, really appealed to me. I think that I'm very conscious of the opportunities that I'm afforded because I'm a man. And also just like the opportunities that otherwise seem very open to everyone but I have the sort of instilled confidence that has been sort of like given to me from a young age that allows me to to just do those things so that's how I like think about it on a sort of day-to-day always making sure that I am thinking how my identity as a man impacts on the particular situations I'm in and benefits me or withholds stuff from others. Until very recently I always overlooked that sense as a gay person I thought that instantly made me a minority in every capacity. But that sense of that received confidence you have as a man that means you might take certain opportunities is something I've only become privy to recently through talking to lots of female identifying friends. Can I ask about that notion, if you've ever had any interior struggle or external struggle from other people about being a male poet? Because there's always that sense of growing up that poetry was deemed to be stereotypically sissy and talking about your feeling isn't something that men are supposed to do stereotypically. Did you ever have any conflict with that or have you received any animosity because of that? There is like always an underlying thing if you are a man who writes poetry that that is in some way feminine uh, and that we should be suspicious of that and to be emotional publicly is something to be suspicious of. But in in, uh, in sort of like my day-to-day life, uh, no, not really. I think that 
I I have, you know, I I think there are all all sorts of other things that like prevent me and make me feel a bit embarrassed about introducing myself as a poet, which are to do with like publishing and are to do with capitalism and how we think about like how you earn your money and why you earn your money and whether, you know, the fact that I'm not doing, you know, both my parents are teachers um, and I work in schools a lot and I I work with and I I lead like poetry and creative writing workshops with young people and adults all the time as uh, you do too. But the idea of like what a real job is, that preoccupies me quite a lot. I think that there are like there there are times when I've been called out as a sort of male poet writing about masculinity and how that has now become a little bit of a cliche. And especially like uh, white men writing about it in a very in a very specific way. I I think earlier I was I was uh, earlier on in my career, I was quite um, happy to like jump on a a, a bandwagon of being like, I'm a poet who writes against toxic masculinity and and using that almost as a sort of brand. And I, I got a general feeling from the poetry community from a lot of like women in my life that that was a that was a bit silly and probably unnecessary. It was a bit overstating the obvious rather than just like letting the fact that I write a lot about football and bodies and and emotions and the fact that I as a man writing that stuff is always going to be about masculinity in some way so you don't need to shove it down someone's throat on Twitter. So like in that way I think I've I've met against certain resistance and I don't say that resistance as like a negative thing it's been quite like an edifying process for me to go through. I really really I'm interested in that idea of writing not feeling like a proper job and whether that's filtered through a prism of what a man's proper job is as a breadwinner or a hunter-gatherer stereotypically. I think there's something really, really interesting in that. Have you found a similar thing with poetry? And and does it differ at all from playwriting? I have encountered ever since I started writing, not from anyone other than friends telling me that I should stop writing about gay stuff, which I've always kind of laughed at. I think... It's that sense of you don't I don't think you pick what you write to some extent. What you write just happens. I think writing's hard enough without engaging without engaging in how it might be received sometimes. I think to some extent what people think of the work is none of my business. I just focus on the work and ignore career and reception. Which I think actually I'm trying to say is that I'm saying that like I just want to focus on the work and like all of my poetry has always been about things that I find fascinating, right? So like at the moment, I'm fascinated by uh, Michael Jordan. So I'm writing about Michael Jordan. I'm really interested in, I, oh, I just wrote like a four-part sequence about Greenland sharks um, that are the oldest mammal that we know of in the world. I became quite interested in wasps recently. And I was like re- reading about wasps and the different parts of their anatomy. I'm really interested in anatomies generally. Like I'm interested in all the different words for parts of the human body. And exactly as you say, like. I'm just going to carry on writing about that stuff. But I think the the mistake that I was making was uh, putting that stuff out into the world. Someone would tell me that it was about masculinity and then I would take that and uh, use it as a big banner for the work in the hope that in a very sort of like hashtag Twitter way, that would help it gain traction and it would help me to like build a, a brand, which feels like a very um, sordid word. And I don't know if you feel the same way about like, being dubbed a gay poet or a queer poet i think the relationship with both the words gay and poet feel they're massive words to me i think when i was a kid Mm. i wanted to say the word gay for 18 years and couldn't and then when i finally could i owned it for a long time and now i think it's a word that comes with so much weight and baggage and politics i don't really want it on my shoulders at 26 anymore 
And I feel like that with friends that say, oh, you're just writing about gay stuff all the time. And I think, of course I am. That's not really a choice, though. It's because the world is unequal and I'm a gay man. I've got to represent something. And someone tweeted yesterday about James Baldwin and Toni Morrison saying they're two of the best writing minds of their generation. If the world wasn't racist, what could they have written about? I think so many queer writers or lots of feminist writers might feel similarly sometimes. Yeah, and and like an ever-refracting idea of identity. So if I can, can we talk a little bit about your relationship with masculinity and writing at six? So I'm really interested to hear about uh, Baby Lewis. Who were you at six? Were you writing and what was your relationship with identity at six years old? Oh, that's a great question. Oh, I'd not thought about this. Um, So when I was six, my school report, uh, there was a line from one of my school reports, uh, which my deputy head wrote, Lewis is six. He has the mind of a 20-year-old. He has the temper of a two-year-old. I was a very, very angry child. And I think that, and I got into a lot of fights at school. Um, I grew up in North London. I went to the local comprehensives and had to move school because I got bullied. And I think that was because I was like, um, an interesting mix of like sensitivity brute rage and I was just like a very forceful loud child I like I still am like I you know I always just talked a lot and I always wrote I I I wish I could I always wish I could tell this story that was when I was um when I was six or seven year one or year two I kept getting sent to the head teacher's office so eventually the head teacher Mrs Wilson gave me a a little notebook and it was called Lewis's thoughts book and it was um for every time that I got angry I was supposed to fill it with my thoughts and so and not not hit someone. And I found that book years later. And I really wish I could tell you, James, that like that book is full of uh, like my first poems. It's not. It's completely empty. I think that at that time I wasn't I wasn't ready to write. I um, obviously I was six. I could barely write. Um, but I always loved stories. I always loved reading. More specifically, I liked listening really into audio tapes from a very young age. And like I'd listen to them as I went to sleep. And so everything from like Michael Rosen's Hairy Tales and Nursery Crimes through to like when I was a teenager, like Mallory Blackman. And um, I used to listen to the Noughts and Crosses series like over and over again. Same with Harry Potter. And so like reading was like totally intrinsic to my my growing up. And I always think about that. There was, there's a statistic about like girls will read literature that has um, either male or female protagonists, but men will never, but young boys will never read things with female protagonists. And I feel really lucky that I had an older sister. So I read loads of stuff with female protagonists. I read all the Ali's World books. I read like Princess Diaries. I read so like other Meg Cabot books, but I still remember having very specific ideas of what the categories of gender were. And that I, I used to hide those books, the like the girly books. And I, I think, yeah, all through primary school, I had I had a very clear sense of who I was as a person. And like the, the parts of sort of boyish identity I, I liked and I enjoyed. I loved and still love football. I was really into sport. And at that age, they, I, I, it, it annoys me now because there's so much potential for um for a collapsing of the sort of binaries of 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 gender when it comes to something like sport like the girls played football with us the ones who wanted to played football with us but we didn't do enough and like staff didn't do enough 
to like actively engage mixed gender sports and stuff like that. And so women were never like invited in. And it's one of the things that I feel a lot now when I think about the things that I love, for example, football, that it's such it's it's so drenched in built beer and masculinity. It's so exclusionary to both women, but also like queer folk and any like non-binary folk. I don't think football actively welcomes anybody in. But but that was a thing that I definitely was I, I think just 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 aware of from a young age. If if I wasn't what like Judith Butler asks us to do, which is like radically question the category categories of identity and then like see what radical possibility political possibilities there are to the end of those questions. If I wasn't questioning identity, I was definitely aware of it. Like I th- I feel like from a young age, children are very aware of 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 their identities and any like shift or movement or threat to those identities is a very difficult thing to deal with my friend told me the other day she shaved her son's head during lockdown because like he really needed a haircut it was getting in his eyes and he was so sensitive about it and he like screamed and screamed um and didn't didn't want his haircut and she she said to me she was like oh I really didn't want to she was like I, I she was like I feel like I was really gendered about it because so he's uh, he's four, um, and she was like, I expected him because he was a boy just to be fine about it and not care about his appearance. And I really felt his pain there because actually, children we 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 think that like self consciousness only comes in as a teenager, but it does it, it it doesn't. It's it's there from like a much earlier phase. And I I think that what I realized when my friend was telling me about her 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 kid that he what he was struggling to do was recognize himself, and that like shaving of his head shifted him away from any sense of like what he thought of himself as and like when he looked in the mirror he didn't see the same person and that was confusing and there's a similar if like slightly more toxic thing going on when he says no I don't want that pink cup I want my regular blue cup because that regular blue cup is what he has formed some sense of identity around and what I was saying was like I think it's much more because my friend was worrying about it and I was like well it is like it is worrying, but firstly, it's not your fault, and secondly, I think that like suspicion of the feminine is something that I have actively and creatively, and like I find a lot of joy in unlearning that suspicion of of feminine of, of feminine things, and it's it's that difference as a man when you're like like when I go to my partner's parents' house and I'm offered like either a beer with her dad or a gin and tonic with her mum. And and I'm sat there and I need to set to take a minute and actually ask myself what I want there. Like, do I want a gin and tonic or do I want a beer? And allowing myself to be like, no, don't be suspicious of a gin and tonic. If that's what you want, have that. Um, and I think that my friend's son was going through a similar thing with like shaving his head. And that thing about recognizing someone, this like touched my heart so deeply. My friend showed him a picture of me because I have shaved my head during lockdown and she was like, look, like Lewis, Lewis looks like this too. And he kept crying and it didn't. And she was like, oh God, that's not helped. And then she had him on the phone to his grandparents later on Zoom and they could like see. And, and they were like, oh my God, your hair looks amazing. And he said, yeah, my friend Lewis has hair like this. And it just made me die. And I was like, oh my God. And I think the reason is that he managed to see something of himself in me. And I think this leads me full circles being like when I was six I think I was trying to find versions of myself in pop culture and whatever um in family and friends that I could I could help sculpt and build an identity around and I often 
found that really difficult. And I think that was one of the things that made me really angry. And then that anger, as I got older, um, I realized wasn't acceptable societally. Um, and it was also dangerous, both both to like me and people around me, because then the second school I went to, my like secondary school that I went to, turned up at year seven. I was like, if I get angry here, I'm going to get beaten the living shit out of. And so, so I, I think anger turned uh, more to like worry. And uh, that anger became internalized. And it, it created a lot of feelings, created a lot of unhealthy ways of processing my emotions, which I am currently through counseling and through like useful conversations with my friends and family trying to move past. So in summary, very angry child and very sensitive child who worried so much that then all that ended up ultimately being channeled into writing. I'm really interested in that sense of growing up with audiobooks and you're falling in love with the voice, which feels like it's really linked to poetry. That idea of you hiding the books your sister was reading that you're also consuming really, really interests me as well. That sense at six, you've learned what boys should be reading and shouldn't be reading. And I've talked about it in other podcasts with other people, that thing that keeps returning, that sense at six, we can't say who we are, but we can point to it in other people in the culture. So I'd love to talk to you now, if I can, about how your relationship with masculinity and writing changed by the time you were 16. So at 16, I was just leaving my secondary school and I went on to a form college. I think, what was the state of my masculinity at that point? I think that anger had been replaced by worry. I was very concerned about, I think, yeah, I think I was often quite concerned with appearing masculine in exactly the right way. So like clothes would be a good example of that, that making sure I was wearing baggy jeans. There were the the hipster boys in the year who wore like really tight. They used to buy like girls jeans from Topshop. And I remember looking at that and being like, no, I could never look like that because that's not masculine or manly. I was very self-conscious because I had like really horrific acne. And I think that like trying to express that to anyone, I remember like I talked to my mum about it, but I'd always have to like really build up my like emotional reserve to be able to express that I was really worried about how I looked because that sort of vanity again I think was supposedly associated with being feminine I remember being like jealous of girls that they had makeup to cover up acne which is a which is like in itself a very pure adolescent feeling one that doesn't incorporate what I learned later about the expectations on like young women to look a certain way and wear certain makeup and everything that comes with that. At 16, I was very conscious of like body image as well. I was obsessed with having a six pack, obsessed with presenting as looking masculine, looking like the sort of David Beckham, Cristiano Ronaldo. And, and, and at the time, you know, I was watching like stuff like the OC or teen films with like Chad Michael Murray or or things like that in the like this is what a man looks like he looks like this like hairless sculpted oh like loads of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer looking at men like David Borneas or or James Masters who are these Hollywood sculpted totally wax men well vampires and not being able to recognize like why my body didn't look like that so like I think there I was writing about that then. I used to write songs because this is like 2009. And in 2009, I think what the world was really looking for was a young white acoustic singer-songwriter from North London. And then Ed Sheeran swooped in, ruined it for the rest of us. So at this point, I was like, I d- oh, even earlier than that, I did like my first like 
like live gig in like a bar in Tottenham Court Road when I was 14. I went to an open mic night. And so I was like, like, and so I was writing songs. I was writing songs about how I felt and like how I was angry or how the girls I fancied, uh, I couldn't express it to them. And interestingly, like I had uh, a sort of quite warped sense of what I looked like and how I was attractive or if I was attractive because the people that I was always attracted to were not the ones who were attracted to me in that classic like teenage way. But there were many other beautiful people who were attracted to me who I was ignoring. And so, yeah, that that was like a preoccupation of my writing from the beginning. It took like years later for me to like look back through everything I've written. I've got pretty much everything I've ever written, ever. Like I've got stories from when I was year four. I've got all of the songs I've ever written since I was about 11. And then I've got all the poetry that I've ever written since. And I think when I look back on it, the thing that, is, that appears over and over again is that I am obsessed with the body. I'm obsessed body parts, like knuckles and muscles and, and shins and hips and lips all like crop up, not only because there is this happy accident of language that loads of those words rhyme, but because I, lo- I loved reading stuff. This is like when I started reading poetry more specifically. So like through the... Uh, syllabus uh, through like the GCSE syllabus I was became obsessed with Simon Armitage and Caroline Duffy and uh, like Seamus Heaney and they are all very much in lots of different ways poets of the body and of like objects they you know uh, you you get these these like solid physical things in their poems and I wanted to replicate that um, and so my poems and, and my songs were always full of, of the body because I think that's a that's it's what the poet and critic Denise Riley calls the live bridge between the external and the interior lives. And so the body is always the thing. It's the filter through which the we, we like process the outside world into our internal world and, and we like release our internal world back out into the external world. And and so I was very conscious of the particular like male body that I was in and and what what effect that had on the world around me. I think it was quite a warped view because you're like a teenager. So I didn't recognize recognize any of the privileges that I I had. I thought, you know, I was very much sort of like, no, it's poor gender equality, but I'd never call myself a feminist. And I, you know, said I, awful things I I told awful jokes and I made and I, I said things because I didn't recognize what it meant to be the body that I particularly was in the world at 16 but then I went through a process of learning more than anything else because at 16 I went to a sixth form college at sixth form college I learned a few things about myself I learned that I was funny for the first time um, and anyone listening to this who's got like half an hour in a sudden like he's not made me laugh once fair enough but like at college someone like I told jokes and people laughed and I started to learn when to tell jokes and what kind of jokes to tell. And I got a girlfriend who was wonderful and, and lovely. And that also like allayed another one of my worries, which was uh, an obsession with virginity as well. That, that like this body that was 16 and male going through the world should have lost his virginity by now. And that was a massive preoccupation, a huge worry of mine. And one that I would write about, not publicly. That was very much like a still the sort of private life of a poem. But getting a girlfriend and being in sort of like intimate contact with someone of the opposite sex, someone whose like entire life was so different to mine was an edifying and educational experience for me. And it taught me from now on in to always be questioning, to always question myself and to try and recognize what my position in the world was relative to this, this person who was really, really close to me. In a way that because 
teenage boys are selfish. I didn't realize before, and I don't want to sound like all those actors who post Harvey Weinstein were all saying like, well, as a father, I don't want to sound like I, it took me getting a girlfriend to be able to be capable of empathy, but actually it did. And I'll take all the sort of like condemnation that, that, that might come with that. But like, it took me trying to understand the interior world of somebody else to recognize what my masculinity meant to me at that particular moment. And, and that continued, like uh, the women around me have always been and continue to be. My partner now continues to, to educate me daily on like how my body and my masculinity in the world is different to theirs. And I find that like really important. So yeah, that was me at 16, worried, acne and writing poetry. Great. Thank you for such an open answer. One of the reasons I wanted to make this podcast is because I've always felt so disconnected from lots of heterosexual identifying men. And that's always bothered me in so many aspects of my life. So hearing similar journeys with your body and other people's bodies, which I felt as a teenager, I think everyone's obsessed with bodies as a teenager because of puberty and lust and vanity and all those things. Mm. And the body goes from being something that you used to laugh at and be quite scared of to being something you're worried that yours is going to be laughed at and other people are going to be scared of. I think there's that real transition between transitional phases between being a boy and a man is all to do with the body someone else we talked on a podcast was talking about when you stop hugging and go to handshakes and you think there's something really similar in that gesture of the body the body being a punchline to a joke to kind of being this thing you want more than anything I so empathize with having to having to have a boyfriend or a girlfriend to reflect you back it's a particular framework within like heterosexuality which is about that sense that there are like a set of rules that like you should have done this by this point and I think that like competitiveness potentially within like heterosexual culture creates even more of an othering for for gay culture does that make sense yeah. and, and and I suppose my question is like that does that feed into your completely justifiable suspicion of or fear of or disconnect with other like of like heterosexual male experience yeah i think that's a great question i think so much of my conflict is between being attracted to something that could hurt me and i'm scared of i'm quite scared of men because i've been kind of the punchline to their jokes or other, felt other to them and yet i'm attracted to them i think uh, that's always been at the root of lots of my interior problems and uh, my writing but i think certainly that sense of um archetypal alpha male competitiveness and the rules and regulations of what you're supposed to be absolutely govern so much prejudice in in terms of what I feel I've encountered I'm sure what lots of um, other LGBTQ people or female identifying people have encountered so I'd love to hear about your relationship with masculinity now and your relationship with your writing now and how that's changed from 16 going from writing to those um, writing at those open mic nights and singing songs to going into writing poetry and how your relationship with your writing, your masculinity has changed in that decade or so. Where I'm at now is, I think you've got me on, on quite a healthy day. I have, I, I am currently, I have a wonderful counsellor and uh, she and I talk about like a wide breadth of things. And part of like talking to her has, has been a process of like making sure I'm, I'm kind of aware at the beginning of this conversation, I was quite condemnatory of a lot of my masculine behaviours. And part of talking to her has been like a process of forgiving myself, of not 
holding myself to a set of rules that I've made up more than anything or that poet or that um or that society has made up for me so I'm I'm actually I'm at a point at the moment where as much as possible I don't I don't give a whole heap of like daily thought or worry to my masculinity and and to how I should be and I'm I'm just letting myself I'm trying to like ask myself on a daily basis like what is it that makes you happy what is it that makes you like calm I've got like a little mental health checklist that I go through um if I'm feeling nervous or anxious about something and so so yeah just trying to be sort of like uh, comprehensive and like healthy with myself and, and acknowledging going back to like being an angry child being a worried teenager I I now hope that I'm a I'm a sort of like questioning uh 20 something and recognizing that there are no like negative emotions as such but there are very unhealthy ways of processing those emotions so like again anger is a is a good example that like being angry and expressing that anger are not bad things at all they're healthy things but punching a wall or the opposite of just like cocooning yourself in silence are not healthy ways of processing that anger but over the last like decade I think I've had to make my way through a lot of things for example like again like sex and relationship there are times when I've been in relationships and like the biggest problem in that relationship has been like my jealousy and I've been jealous of my girlfriend's former partners which is one of the stupidest kinds of jealousy that you can you can sort of like interact with because it's somebody's past and they shouldn't have to do anything about it but sort of more importantly they can't (laughs) um and so I'd get jealous of former partners and I'd have a girlfriend who I'd I'd just go round and round and round in in circles with on this one argument and I don't know what I ever expected her to do unsleep with someone like that's just just ridiculous but like I had to like go through a process of that in relationships I was like quite an unhappy single person at certain points as well. I've had wonderful experiences as a single person, wonderful like sexual relationships as a single person. But like, I think again, going back to that 16 year old worried about losing his virginity, I think I was constantly worried that I wasn't being like the stereotypical heterosexual man and like sleeping with enough. I'm putting that in scare quotes. Like I should be sleeping with many, many women. And that promiscuity was a sign of, of masculinity, of like virility. And that ultimately just made me incredibly pressured. And it made me ultimately like not perform sexually or not perform sexually very well in, in, in scenarios. Or it made me just not enjoy sex sometimes. I do, again, go back to like, I had some amazing experiences with some really wonderful people but I was yeah always in this like constant dialogue with myself that I didn't really enjoy about like what I should be doing again I had this like set of rules for what a man was what a 22 year old man should be how many people he should have slept with how he should be dating like all all of these things how much money he should be making like what sort of poetry he should be writing whatever it was and it was wasn't very nice and I ultimately ended up being quite lonely and a few things saved me from that loneliness. My friends were really, really important. And I have always, I've always actually had like more women as friends than men. I think I have a similar thing to, to what you mentioned. I, but like, I think I do fear men. Or actually, I feel like quite uncomfortable with men. I feel quite awkward. I feel quite like I hate small talk of any kind. It's why I really enjoyed, I remember the first time I met you, we, we had a cuddle. 
and that was really nice but also it felt like we didn't need to engage in any sort of small talk we didn't need to go how are you yeah I'm good how are you good is it nice weather or whatever like I found that I find that really embarrassing and awkward and I hate it. And so I've, I've, so like one of the things that sort of saved me from my, my loneliness was having so many friends, both male and female. Football saved me from my loneliness. I was back living in Norwich and I didn't have a whole heap of people around me on a day-to-day basis. And watching match of the day every week was, it was incredible more than anything else because like it seemed completely separate from any other anxieties I had at that time about like, climate crisis or loneliness or my career match of the day was just a thing that happened every week full of football that had nothing to do with the rest of my life and I didn't have to think about it in terms of masculinity I didn't have to think about it in terms of sex or uh, like sexual activity I didn't have to think about it in terms of of anything except here's this thing that you find really entertaining and I really engaged with it and coming back to writing finding voices and poets that that reflected parts of the experience that I I have so like poets like Andrew McMillan like Sharon Olds like Dennis Smith like uh, like Jeff Hattersley the the in this like wide spectrum of ways of talking about gender and talking about masculinity Saeed Jones uh, like Wayne Holloway Smith were all sort of like helpful prisms to to see the world through and again, like those poems became, or all those things, those poems, those friends, those like episodes of Match of the Day became another sort of uh, live bridge, another way of like linking the external world to my interiority and my interior and expressing my interiority to the external world and understanding that I am not just man. I am not just masculinity and that like those parameters and those boxes of gender are so unhelpful to me specifically yeah and I, and I want to like I want to I wanted to collapse those and in that way become less lonely in that way become more more comfortable with myself and less sort of like held in in a similar way you were talking about with like your your discomfort with like being called a gay poet and and so like not feeling latched on to any particular identifier and it's that it's at that point that I go back to what I was talking about earlier that I stopped like shouting on Twitter about having written a new poem about toxic masculinity like and I was just like they're just new poems they're just poems and and I'm therefore like quite suspicious of so so now I hope that I've turned my like suspicion of the feminine or of anything deemed unmanly and recreated just like a suspicion of of like of of terminology and of people assigning ideas to me or me assigning ideas and rules to myself and allowing for a far more like flexible ever-changing sense of self and that's where I'm at now at 27 and and I can I can be more free beautiful thank you again so much chimes with me there going back to the beginning of your answer that sense of feeling you have to be a certain way sexually as a man my god did I feel that pressure as a gay man as well that sense that you're told that your identity can only exist in pubs and clubs and that means you have to learn to like drink and that means that you've you're told or you think you're told by a kind of homophobic culture that your relationships are solely sexual and can't be emotional or cerebral with other gay men so my god did I feel that pressure as well so it's again forgive me saying comforting in that sense of hearing your experiences that were traumatic potentially are comforting to me but you know what I mean it's that sense of mirror and recognition with a straight man who you might have felt disconnected from so thank you for making me feel connected like that and I think certainly that sense of needing something that is an an escape valve from having to think about yourself 
be that football or be that theatre, which I think theatre is for me. And um, I think part of the reason I've got into poetry is because theatre has become too much like work and has stopped becoming fun. Uh, I think men, football and theatre and pubs are all the same, really. They've got their own script. They've got their own costume. They've got their own performance space. There's a real connection between theatres and pubs and masculinity and football and what you're supposed to say and what you're supposed to wear and etiquette. I think we all need that sense of performative escape um, that I've really, really connected with in your response there. Um, Just really comforting to hear as well that you're in that place, as I said, I am with the writing too, of just forgetting that we have to be anything and we just have to write. That is our job. Um, And our interest is just to write just to put pen to paper and not to have to engage with too much of a discourse that's nothing to do with us really. And there's real comfort in that sense of you feel like you have to check in with yourself every day and remind yourself of that. Cause I feel like that. And it's exhausting just having to constantly check in every day and think, okay, I'm not equal to other people today. Oh goodness. What an annoying thing. Just have to wake up with that every day. Um, or I feel like this unseen thing is telling me I've got to behave like this in my life today. It's knackering. But as you say to anyone who's listening as well, listeners take comfort in the fact that everyone feels it and everyone at any age we've spoken to on this podcast feels it. And it's a daily recalibration of yourself um, that you can ignore those stories and tell your head contrary narratives as we're doing now through our work and kind of through that daily practice of grounding ourselves and saying, I don't have to be anything other than myself. And I, I, the, the thing that I find really, the thing that I find really liberating about, cause I really want to, I really want to like end on a positive note is the, the capacity to like part of, part of the, the fun here, part of the joy, part of the exciting task ahead of, us me is is the act of imagination is being like well what so like this this is what like the world has told me to be this like man in a suit and tie and you know for for my particular because it's like all the intersections of like race class and gender but like uh, me as like a white man and like the the sort of like the the pinnacle of masculinity is for me is this like man in a suit and tie in a big office running a hedge fund making loads of money being like uh, sexually prolific and 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 all of these things right and so, like, if that's decidedly what I don't want to be, or there might be parts of that I want to engage with, like the suit, maybe. But, like, what the, the, the fun thing is, like, what can I be? Like, what, like, exciting new thing can I create for myself? I, like, a good example of this is that for years, I just wore black and white. Like, I just wore black jeans, black T-shirts, black shirts. Like, sometimes, like, the, the most colourful I got was, like, blue jeans and a black shirt. And then I just started to like relax myself and I started to allow myself to imagine to imaginatively engage with my wardrobe and buy a fucking pink shirt, buy a green shirt, buy a bright red shirt, buy like uh, cherry red shoes, wear yellow socks. Like the, these, these for, for other people might, might seem like such small things, but like that is a process for me of like exciting excitedly and I don't know something like uh it reimagining reimagining who I can be and and like engaging daily with the radical possibilities of what happens when we 
uh, question those categories of, ident- uh, of of identity, which is like again a, a Judith Butler phrase. What what does it what does it mean? It like leaves so much exciting space for for us to hopefully run into. Um, yes, there are like so many obstacles to it. I'm not like trying to disregard them, but I really want to to express this note to anyone listening of any age that like that possibility of reinvention is there, and the self is not static. And you are not just one thing or one set of rules or one wardrobe or, or, or one set of behaviours. You, you can create more for yourself. And, and every time I feel like someone's saying to me that like, oh, you're like this. Uh, like if an ex-girlfriend said to me that she, she thought, she, she always thought of me as a really angry person. And I just hate, I hated the idea that I'm just always an angry person. But then the fun creative thing is that I get to reimagine what I can be without repressing that anger and express it in new, funny, exciting ways. And yeah, that's that's the sort of advice that I would give is, you know, engage with the imaginative imaginative possibilities of what else you could or want to be. Beautiful. I think that's such a great note to end on. And thank you so much for your candor. It's been an absolute joy talking to you and listening to you. Um, So thank you for your time, Lewis Buxton. Cheers thank you for listening this has been mantor the masculinity conversations brought to you by me james mcdermott and story machine productions with music by jordan mallory skinner and produced by sam ruddock we're keen to talk to anyone who wants to share their experience of masculinity if you would like to be featured in a forthcoming episode, drop us a line at storymachineproductions at gmail.com.